This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. Our guest is Sam Gordano. Sam, welcome to the show. What turned you off about a specific operator versus, you know, making you ask more questions or want to eventually partner with someone? Sure. No, makes sense. Well, the great thing about it is often the sponsors that endear me the most, it's hard for them to do anything about that. They either have it or they don't. Meaning like you have to get a feel that somebody actually cares about what you're talking about as opposed to they're just focused on selling you something. And it's almost as if like not to talk bad about car salesmen or anything like that or people who call you telemarketers, but there's some people you just get the feel they're really trying to sell you something and they're not really interested in you at all and trying to see is there a fit here? Is there a relationship here? And people ask me whether it's in the business realm or physician realm, this similar types of questions, because this kind of skirts across all fields, but it's almost like you can't fake it. So I think the biggest thing I would say for sponsors to try to help with that is to really focus on what I can do to show that I really care about the investor as a person and what I can do to provide value as opposed to focus on how do I get this investor to sign up for my deal? And it's a mindset thing that some people can or can't do. So from that standpoint, but I think the biggest negative is there are some sponsors that I spoke to and right after the conversation, I'm like, I'm running the other way. Like there's no way I want to invest in this sponsor's deal. I just felt dirtier after the conversation and, and I just felt like I was really being sold something. And that to me, I mean, it's just maybe me personally, but it just kind of turns me off a little bit. Did they like just jump into a deal or jump into trying to get you to invest right away? What was it that they said? Or is there anything that you could highlight there that's like, man, you know, they just handled this so poorly or I felt this way because they did this? Generally, when a conversation, when you start a conversation with a sponsor, they ask a little bit about you. And some people, while you're doing that, they let you go. And then some people kind of interrupt you throughout the process and bring up things about their organization before you even had a chance to kind of give some background on yourself. So they're really not listening. They're just waiting for opportunities to say something to you. And it's always in all conversations, it's always harder to be a listener. But I look for that people who are good listeners in that process, because I think that generally shows confidence and comfort in what they're doing. And they're not as on edge on that. So I would say trying to interrupt you when you're talking initially to kind of give a little background on yourself. And then they quickly veer towards what they would do by you investing in their syndication. And it's not as much about seeing if there's a true fit there. I'm listening. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's awesome. I feel like that's such a good example. Sam, you know, I got like two calls yesterday. One of them, as soon as I answer the phone, they say, did you know your car warranty is about to expire? (laughs) That's what it made me think of. It's like, what? Who is this? And that's kind of the way you feel. Right. I'm like, nope, thank you. Block that number, right? And so, yeah, we don't want to be that way as operators, for sure. I just think that's a great example of just how important that conversation is. And here's a thought, because this is something I've had to do personally, is like as we have more and more investors that are 
wanting to talk to us, right, or work with us. Like, we want to have those conversations with them. I would love to speak to every one of them individually, but guess what? I can't. I have to, like, groom someone on the team to do that, right? And I waited as long as I possibly could to do that, you know, because it's like, I want to have those conversations. I like those conversations and getting to know the investors. However, it's just not possible for me to do them all, right? So how do you feel about, hey, when you schedule a call or you finally get to talk to the team, and you're not getting to talk to the main operator. What are your thoughts around that as a past investor? I wonder that personally, and I know many other operators that are listening wonder the same thing. How is that viewed as a potential LP or passive investor when, well, you know, I didn't get to talk to the main operator, but, you know, I got to talk to such and such on the team. Yeah. And there were a couple operators that that was the case. And one of them I did invest with. So it's definitely not a red flag for me. And most passive investors, especially if they've looked into it and got some education, they realize there are certain groups of syndication teams that are just large enough to the point where it's just not logistically possible to talk to every new investor. I think if there's a way to sort of have that sort of investor relations person reiterate that if you wanted to, or if there's additional questions that I can't answer, then you could have access to Whitney to where it's as if there's a possibility and you may get a third of maybe 10, 15% of investors that take that. It's like when you give your cell phone out to somebody, like most people handle it like a patient or something like that. Most people handle it pretty well and don't abuse it, but there are some people that will, but it's not the majority. So I think if you offered something like that, where the investor relations person that is the one communicating that first sort of communication says, you know what, if I can't answer anything, you have the ability to reach out to Whitney himself, but he just can't speak with every investor, but we can certainly make that happen if that's the case to where they feel like that you're not trying not to speak with them, but it's just, there's logistics involved. I think something like that may be able to offset it. But like I said, there was one sponsorship team that I spoke to the investor relations person multiple times. They were very good. I was satisfied with the talk and I never spoke with the actual sort of head sponsor of that team. And I invested with them anyway. What if that person can't answer all your questions? So I know you mentioned like there's an option for you to talk to the operator. However, maybe this person is not extremely knowledgeable even about the syndication business. Is that going to turn you off completely? Maybe a little bit, only because that person, if they're in the investor relations position, they should really have the ability to answer most. I mean, most of the questions I ask, I mean, they may be slightly more detailed than other limited partners, but they're not coming out of left field. I mean, uh, at least I hope they're not, you know, (laughs) but they really should be able to answer most of those questions. Like how many full cycle deals, information about the market, what's the business plan. Some of these things I can get from the investment summary, but some of the things it's nice to have a conversation, especially when you first meet a sponsor. Like if I've invested two, three times in this group, I already know the group. I know what their communication is. And it's really that first communication that you want that investor relations person to be prepared because that's sort of just like anything. It's a reflection of the team. And if they seem unprepared, or then it may reflect badly on the team because that's the only contact you have. Yes, could not agree more. I'm grateful just for you diving in on that because I feel like it's a great subject for operators to think about, right? I've struggled with that because I want to take those calls, but it's just not possible to take them all, which is a great problem. However, there's other issues that come up because of that, right? And I know that there's so many things we could get into about the deal and the market and whatnot. And unfortunately, we're running a long time as far as doing all of that. But I feel like the operator 
is like the first link in the due diligence, right? Of investing as an LP or passive investor. I'm just thankful to dive in. And before we have to move to some other questions, Sam, anything else around, say, the operator specifically that as an LP are like do's and don'ts or, hey, if you see this, stay away or anything else you want to share just around the operator specifically as an LP? So some of the objective criteria, like the biggest thing is the feel you get. I can't emphasize that enough because it's really important and you have to trust your intuition. And whether it's in this field or any field, oftentimes your intuition is correct. And it's just a matter of supporting that feeling with the objective information. And that's kind of how I feel about the operator as well. Like the biggest thing is the intuition. And then after that, I generally look for operators or teams that have at least five full cycle deals from an experience standpoint. I'm just not looking for home runs. I'm not looking to take excessive risk. I'm looking at the long game as a passive investor. And I want people who have done this before. So I look at that sort of people who have had five full cycle deals. It used to be that we had a criteria that if somebody has been in a real estate syndicator prior to 2008, which was the last like main recession. But as we get further and further along from that, there's just not that many syndicators that have that much experience. Now, most of the people that have are into sort of the private equity space and they're not sort of dealing with the limited partners and individual investors and stuff like that as much. So I don't use that criteria as much, but I would say the five full cycle deals, the geographic market, is it something that I'm interested in where they're focused on? Is this a new sort of investment in a different market? Like if somebody had deals and all their deals are in Texas and now they're going to Florida or so. I don't generally like to invest in that first deal out just because of the fact that they need to kind of get their feet wet. And I'm not really interested in being part of that when that happens. I mean, it may be a great deal, but it's just not worth the risk to me, you know? And then is there a succession plan? If God forbid something happened to the sponsor, is the deal going to implode or is somebody there to kind of take over that? Those are some of the variables. There's others, but those are some of the big ones that we look at. Oh, what's the percentage that they accept from self-directed IRAs versus taxable investing as somebody who invests post-tax money or taxable money? If a majority of the investors are self-directed IRAs or pre-tax money, then they may not be as interested in the tax benefits. Whereas someone like me who is, I want to see at least 50% or more of the investors that are investing cash or taxable money. And these may vary from a deal-to-deal basis, but some sponsors have more of a focus on certain types of investors and things like that. So so those are some of them. That's just great insight for sure. And we could talk about this all day long, I know. (laughs) But I want to ask just a few other things because I love your perspective from the LP side and just as much as you've educated yourself, it's great. So what about you're talking to an operator? What do you like to see as far as them being prepared for a potential downturn? One of my sort of classic questions that I'll ask an operator, there's two usually. And one is, what makes you different? Because I find that it gets to the heart of sort of what they identify with and what their business plan is that may be different from others or why they have a competitive advantage in the space. So it's sort of a broad question, but it gives the operator a chance to be that gives me a feel for really where they feel like their identity is that separates them. And the second is, tell me about a deal that's gone bad. So I don't even ask them if a deal has gone bad. I say, tell me about a deal that's gone bad because I just assume that there's something that's gone bad. So if they said there's no deal that's gone bad, then either they don't have enough experience because there's always something that comes up. Even if the deal winds up good, like you can talk about you know, a storm or a fire or something that 
happen that you had to kind of think on your feet. So I like to see how the operator responds to that deal. And then the follow-up to that question is, how do you mitigate that risk going forward? Or I don't ask them specifically, how do they prepare for a downturn? But I just want to see what their preparation is, what they've learned from that experience and what they've done to correct it to give me an idea into the mindset of how much foresight they're looking for to, to prevent that kind of thing in the future. Bronson, welcome back to the show. Awesome. Great to be back, man. I feel like I'm becoming a regular here. I mean, we just talk every day. This is, <laughs> yeah, maybe this is we great, should. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I'm honored to have you back. And you know, let's jump in. I, I know you dove into this investing business and real estate and just everything that's happening in the economy right now, which we talked about yesterday quite a bit. But how are you evaluating syndication deals right now? You know, just in your opinion, or maybe even how you guide passives to evaluate a syndication. Maybe you can talk at a high level, but then also, you know, let's dial it into today to this current economic climate. If, if there's any changes there in your opinion. Yeah, so that's a big couple of questions there. So first of all, when it comes to evaluating just thought deals... Just it off real easy today. Yeah. You know? yeah, you just start with like, drop the bomb. Here you go, mic drop, take it over. So yeah, I think when you're looking at, at deals, there's really three parts I encourage people to look at as passive investors is you have the market. So that's kind of the biggest thing. What market are you buying in? Then you have the operating group that you have that you're working with. And then you have the specific deal that you're considering investing in. So I want to take each one of those kind of, you know, how they look. So if you, if, if you buy in the right market and it's a growing market where you have, you know, population growth, job growth, income growth, you can do a lot of things wrong in the management of that property and still do phenomenally well. And why is that? It's because what the rising tide will raise all ships, right? So if you're buying in an area, if you're buying, let's say, not picking up people in Cleveland, but in Cleveland, the population is flat or declining, right? So that you don't have population growth, job growth, income growth. They have other forms of growth and people might send me <laughs> angry emails that, okay, actually can do things there, but it's a different type of market, right? Versus where we buy in Jacksonville, Florida, we see 20,000 new people moving to Jacksonville every single month, right? There's a 97% occupancy in the city. So we see this market that's growing, We've got jobs. We've got people that are moving because of COVID. They can work remotely. We've got people that are retiring that want to live in Florida and pay no state income tax. You've got all these things that are here that are causing growth. So if you just have people moving there, you've got more jobs there, you have more income there. That's a great, great place to be. Second thing is the operator you're working with. Now, if it's somebody's first deal and there's nobody on the team that has more than five or 10 years of experience, you might want to say, well, I don't know this, you know, how solid is it that they're going to be able to achieve this business plan, right? Because you want to make sure that you that all three of those things line up, right? The market, the team, and then the deal. So when it comes to the team, I look for, you know, what's their reputation in the industry? How you figure that out is by going to events, by asking around, by a lot of, you know, just you know, maybe even searching online, trying to figure out, maybe talking with other investors that have invested with them. And you try to figure out, you know, what are their, their core values? And, and I think a great question to ask operators is, what's something that didn't go according to plan? And, you know, how did you deal with that? And if anybody does not have an answer for that, I would say, do not invest with that group, right? Because, you know, all these deals, they don't go as planned. They go in certain areas better than expected. They go about as expected than others. They, oh, this went worse here. And there's always, there's so much learning that happens. Even people that I know, one of my partners has had 28 years of experience and 13,000 units, right? So my inexperience is not a big deal because he's got so much experience with the asset management. So that's the second thing is just really making sure you got an experienced team where the values line up, the goals line up, the time horizon. You ask them, you know, 
if this deal doesn't go well, you know, what are the things that you see are the risk here? So when you're looking specifically at the deal, what I would say is, you know, does it meet your investment goals? Is it something, is it the time horizon right? Is it achievable in the sense this group has done other deals and they have some track record to show that they could do something similar? Does the business plan make sense? Again, I quote Warren Buffett a lot. He says, we never invest in anything that we don't understand, right? So if it doesn't make sense to you, then don't invest with it. So I think that's a lot of things. And I think some people get stuck at this point because they look at like five or 10 deals and they just, they can't figure out what to do. But my thought is just, you know, look at five deals, and then choose one and invest with it. It'll probably go fine. And then you'll learn along the way, right? Regardless. So that's just kind of from a high level. Yeah. I love to how at many of those things we talk about, you know, as far as evaluating, you know, a new investment for a past investor. But one thing I love that you brought up there is alignment of goals and values. Because there, I know operators personally that, I mean, they've produced amazing returns for a long time for investors. And I'm invested passively in numerous projects and other operators as well. Okay. But my whole point is, I know some operators who they have this amazing track record, but I just personally wouldn't invest with them because our values would not align. It almost goes back to the another segment you, know, you and I were talking about, just about how tenants are treated and how we care about our communities and those things, right? And so I, I want our values to align. I want to make sure that, you know, hey, I'm investing in a business that we would have the same or alignment of goals, right? And values and caring about these people. And so I just love that you brought that up. And I do, I feel like the operator's, crucially important long before the deal, right? Long before you ask any questions about the deal. Any thoughts around just the current economic climate and investing passively or any change of where you would put your focus as far as evaluating? You know, you know, let's say all the operators are created equal. What would be the next thing you know, as far as the current economic climate? that you would focus on? Yes, yeah, so we talked a little bit about this yesterday, just about why I think it's a great time to invest in multifamily just because of interest rates being higher, I think is actually a benefit in some ways to be able to readjust later to lower rates, which will cause valuations to rise. But I continue to, and this is not a popular view, then again, I'm not even sure. Maybe this is your business models. I don't mean to be, you know, if there's any, if I say something that, you know, is, is different than where you're at. But, you know, when it comes to class A apartments that are brand new, I personally think that it's a higher risk type of proposition right now. Because I think, you know, when you have a class A apartment, you're assuming rents are going to continue to rise, right? There's not, there's no value to add, right? So if you're buying a brand new or a new construction or new build, there's some risk there that, you know, like in Pasadena, California, where I live, rents are $4,200 a month for a two bedroom. Well, if there's a, a serious recession, they're not going to get 4,200. They might get 3,500. They might get 3,000. It's the, it's the people that are in class A apartments those people move down to class B or they move down to class C, right? They, they change or they move down. But when you have a value-added component, which just simply means you're going in, you're doing renovations, you're doing landscaping, you're doing stuff on the exterior, you're doing individual unit stuff, it gives you this margin of safety that really there's a bump in the value because it's different than single family. Single family is based on you know, what did this comp property across the street or across town sell for, right? Multifamily is based on the income, how much income is actually coming in from the property. So it's a different way we calculate valuations, right? So if we can increase the rents or increase the other income from laundry or from parking or other things like that, we're dramatically increasing the value of that property. So I think that when you have a value add component, it puts a huge margin of safety in a deal versus something where there is no value to add. Yeah. What about any specific strategies maybe you've used to protect investors from these market swings? 
Yeah. So I think really kind of what you mentioned as well, I hear was this today or yesterday, but the idea of just being very conservative on your underwriting, this is a term that people use a lot. It's a core value of ours, but I think what it really comes into there are a couple numbers. One is your rent and growth assumptions, right? You can take any deal that's a terrible deal, make it look great if you just have huge rent growth, right? So, you know, we typically, even in booming, booming markets, we typically never go above about 3%, you know, projected rent growth, even though rents are growing in certain markets that we're in by 20% or more, right? So, you know, being very modest there, also the cap rate at exit. So cap rate is just, you know, the value, how much you're paying for how much income you're getting. And as cap rates are, some people project that, oh, cap rates are going to keep going down. Well, you need to project that they're going to go higher, which would be less favorable when you sell, but just to be prepared for that, right? So our goal is to be modest on our projections and hopefully achieve them or outperform them. And I think it comes down to really investor you know, expectations. And but I think those are a couple of things just on the on being conservative side. Yeah, that's great. Is there any specific opportunity that you could use as an example, maybe to talk through even some of the conservativeness on rent growth or exit caps? It doesn't even have to be your deal or maybe, you know, somebody else's or something you've thought about investing in. Maybe you didn't because they had, you know, these assumptions. Yeah. So I think it comes back to just the idea of really understanding the deal. Like what, you know, what is the biggest risk in the deal and every deal. And again, more than real estate, you know, we do real estate related stuff, but we talk about, you know, other assets like our ATM machine fund. We do, you know, I do things in the precious metal space or the energy space. So whatever deal you're looking at, you always want to think about what is the downside? What other risks there? So I think of some risks are being, the problem is if your projections are too lofty, it's really hard to see are you going to be able to get that upside? And I've seen, there was a deal I looked at recently, I guess, you know, being somebody who gets involved in deals, people want you to come and be a part of their deal and raise money or be a part of the management team. And, you know, somebody had a deal, I think it was like a 2012 build or something. So it was, it was built more recently. They called it an A minus value add. And I'm thinking, well, it's only 10 years old. Like how much value really could you add to this? Right. But there are ways to add value. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just to me, it's just not something that I've done, you know, focused on kind of the newer value add stuff as well. But I, th- I think, you know, I've seen deals where people, their assumptions are just that everything's going to go perfect. You know, from day one, we're going to be able to increase rents. We're going to have all these things or even operators are communicating that, yeah, you know, we're going to start giving distributions really early or really consistently. And it's like, you know, some of it just has to depend on how the deal performs, right? So I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's more of a feel that I get when I read it. And that's, that's the challenge or when I look at a deal is, it's not just one thing. It's like when I really look at, it, I want to think: Do I feel like I have a sense of where this operating group is coming from? Are they are they looking at the downsides? Do they have anything in there that says, "Hey, if this doesn't go well, here's what we get"? Or maybe there's a sensitivity analysis that, okay, if rates are here, or if our cap rates are, you know, in this area, this is what we'll get paid, or this is, and it just gives more options, right? So you're looking at it, and you feel like at least the operator has a plan for if the tide turns and things go the other way. Because the longer you do this, Whitney, as you know the more you realize there's, there are things you can control and there are things that you cannot control. And you can control a, a fair number of things, but a lot of things you cannot control. So it's really how you manage those things before you get into a deal that's really, really important. That's when you can make changes, right? Before you get into the deal. <laughs> exactly, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up because yeah, that's, that's when it's important that you 
Think through as many possibilities as possible and knowing that you're not going to know them all. It's like getting married, right? Like the time to do diligence is before you get married, right? <laughs> it's like once you're married, you're like, oh, you're married. You know, it's yeah. like you want to make sure that you've really taken a good look at everything and, and that it makes sense. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> dating advice there too for Maybe those. Maybe you need to also need a reserve budget before getting married, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Contingency. So even something like that, like a reserve budget or or anything around that that you like to see or maybe that you're doing personally right now? How do you see those things so you know you're prepared for the downturn, you know, when it happens or worst case scenario or the unexpected? What are some things that you're important to you to have in place? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, contingency is huge. You know, how much per door is it, you know, $250 per door per year? How much is it that you want to have in place? You want to have contingencies in place for, you know, okay, these expenses cost more, these renovations cost more, they took longer than you thought, you know, you're not able to get the income in the time frame that you thought. And so just that you have a plan. And then, you know, you think through, like, I get this question sometimes, well, you know, do you guys ever do a capital call? And like, no, we don't, we don't, we haven't done a capital call and I'm grateful. But, you know, I say there's five things we'll do before we'll get to a capital. I have, I have a plan for this, right? So we'll take out, hopefully we'll be more conservative on our underwriting. We'll have extra reserves. So I can remember all five now that I'm on the spot here. <laughs> you know, if we had something really difficult, we could withhold distributions for a little bit saying, hey, we have this expense, we've got to do this. Hopefully insurance could potentially cover something if there was something catastrophic that happened. We could make a personal loan from the general partners to the property if we needed to. And then the last thing, then the last thing we would do is, is a capital call, right? Is a voluntary capital call. So those are things that, you know, what happens? And that was, that's a great question too, as a passive investor is what are the things in place? Have you ever had to do a capital call? Well, what are some things in place that would try to prevent that, right? A capital call is just, hey, we need more money. We ran out of money, right? And that's kind of like in any business, you never want to run out of money. So if there's plans in place that you have enough money or well enough capitalized, and it is a balance because if, if you have too much money, then your returns are lower than they should be, right? Because you overraised, you raised too much money. And if they're too low, well, then you're going to feel it in the returns or you're going to be pinched on cash flow or operations and, and neither is, is good. So, but I think it's, if you're going to go one side or the other, have a little bit more money than you need. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 